If you would uh, turn in your Bibles now to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. About a month or so ago, I was having trouble. I was praying through a trial. So I decided to read through Lamentations because I wanted to find the words to appropriately express kind of what I was thinking and what I was feeling. But here's the thing. I had a particularly stubborn attitude at the time. So I knew what I wanted to not do was really camp on Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, which is, you know, the verse everyone knows, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercy never comes to an end. They're new every morning, great is your faithfulness. This is the only passage of the book that that people are are really, really familiar with. Um, This is the one that you see like on pillows and like decorative frames and door hangs and stuff in the Christian bookstores. And, and it's probably the only verse in all of Lamentations that like Joel Osteen or Oprah would even touch. And I wanted particularly at this moment to kind of wallow in my grief. <laughs> so, so it's not that I was just going to ignore that passage, but I was going to focus on some of the other verses instead. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but here's what I found as I, as I really looked at the book of Lamentations. I found first that the words of Jeremiah, the words that he uses for what he's seen and experiencing, are describing a far more difficult trial than anything that I am going through now, or even that I have been through. It's the blackest trial that I could imagine. All the verses... Throughout the rest of this book, in fact, though, they just kind of point out how dark this trial is. You find that they kind of just serve to magnify the middle of chapter 3 and make it all the more sweet. And so rather than finding a way to complain to God while pretending to be godly about, uh, uh, that's what I was doing, I, I found instead instructions on how to respond when things aren't just going bad but when they are about as dark and hopeless as they can seem. So here's my outline. First, what we're going to do is I'm going to focus on a couple of things, two things that will help show the severity of the trial that Jeremiah is writing about. And these are two things that are kind of outside of the text, uh, but I think you really need to understand to really understand the purpose of this passage and why it's so important. And then I have 11 ways that the text points out how we should respond to trials. And now you're all stuck in here. You couldn't read it in your bulletin earlier and leave. 11 ways. Yes, 11. Some will take more time than others. The the first two points are kind of things that we see in in a cursory glossing over of the text. And then the next nine are specific responses that we find in the words of the text. There was a time when I was kind of planning this to be maybe two or, or three sermons. So just kind of bear with me. I promise it won't go over, my sermon won't go over an hour. I promise, in fact, that, n- that not one of the three sermons I have this morning will go over an hour. Uh, so just bear with me. The first two are going to seem long, but, but it'll, it'll pick up the pace, I promise. Uh, the words of this book, though, for the words of this book to really take on their fullest meaning for us, it is critical that we have an understanding of a couple of things before we go in and read, actually read the text. I want to point out the structure of the book and the context in which it was written. So, so first, I want to point out the structure of the book. Now, this might seem boring. So we're doing it here at the front end so you don't fall asleep. But just 
please just try and pay attention. I want you to have your Bibles open and kind of you can kind of flip through the pages and look and see see these things for yourself. Lamentations is constructed of five different poems. The first two poems, chapters one and two, have twenty two verses each, and each verse contains a three line stanza, and each stanza begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters long. There are 22 letters in it. So the structure of at least especially the first two chapters is very well organized. It goes in alphabetical order according to uh, the Hebrew alphabet. So this is actually called an acrostic poem, and there's actually many examples of this in the Bible and the Psalms. So verse 1 begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. Verse 2 begins with, and if you have an HCSB translation, I think it shows you that. Verse 2 begins with the second letter, which is Bet, and then so on, and you see that in each one. So, so that's what chapters 1 and 2 look like. And then if you flip over and look at chapters 4 and 5, you'll see that chapter 4 is also an acrostic, and you just have to take my word for this, because your Bible isn't in Hebrew, probably. But it goes in alphabetical order also. Each two-line stanza begins with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And chapter 5 is the simplest uh, of the poems in that it's each, each verse is only one line. It still keeps the 22-verse structure, but it, it doesn't have the acrostic pattern, and, and the, the first letter means different things. Now, say all that to show you that chapter 3 in Lamentations, is the most complex of the poems in that, like chapters 1 and 2, it has 22 different three-line stanzas. So it's the same length as chapters 1 and 2, but you'll notice your English translation gives it 66 verses, and that's because verse 1 begins with Aleph, verse 2 begins with Aleph, that's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, verse 3 begins with Aleph. You get to the second stanza, which is 4, 5, and 6, verse 4 begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is bet. Verse 5 begins with it. Verse 6 begins with it, and so on and so on. All this to say, and all this so you can see, chapter 3 is the most complex of the poems in the book of Lamentations, and it's placed in the center to draw attention and emphasis to it. And, and here's kind of the difference. We are, as English readers, we're used to reading material where we kind of watch it build up to where the main point is at the end of the material that we're reading. But, but Hebrew poetry didn't follow that typical uh, way that we do that. They would place the main point in the center frequently. They like to put it there um, so that all of the, the previous verses move up to that point and all of the the verses after it kind of go away from it, but altogether they lead up to that one central point. Maybe as an example to kind of help you, uh, to help you see this, um, on, on Monday, my family uh, took a trip. It was my day off, so we went up Trail Ridge Road. Um, and apparently, I should have used Monday to, to make that section of the sermon more clear, but instead what we did was we took a family, little family day trip to go up to uh, the top of Trail Ridge Road. And so hopefully at some point you have taken this trip up Trail Ridge Road. It's this road between Estes Park and Grand Lake. You start out going through Estes Park and up the mountain uh, through Rocky Mountain National Park, and you get to this point that's the top where they conveniently have a gift shop. And when you're there, you can go down now from there to Grand Lake, 
or back down to, to Estes Park. And so the point is, while you're driving up, there's still all kinds of awesome photo opportunities, right? There's, there's herds of elk, and there's all kinds of places you want to stop, pull off, and take pictures. And it's all great and stuff. But the reason you're driving to the top is to get that one picture of your kids who are all crying and angry by now. Where they're, but they're standing there with the mountain peaks behind them, and they're, they're like taller than some of them. Because it's the top point, that's the, that's the picture you want. All the other stuff going up and down is still great and awesome. But, but the part, the most important part is that central top part. And so this is, this is kind of what they do in Hebrew poetry. So we have chapter 3 right in the center to draw our attention to t- chapter 3. And if you're to divide chapter 3 into three different parts, because there's a major shift in verse 21 and then another major shift back in verse 42, then right there at the beginning of the middle of chapter 3, you have uh, this great confession of 21 and 22 that that the whole rest of Lamentations just kind of feeds off of. Everything in the book leads up to that point and then moves away from that truth. And this is how the structure of Lamentations helps to inform our reading today of it. So so that's the first thing uh, outside the text that I want you to see so you have a better appreciation for this. The second thing is the context, the context for which this is written. Lamentations is written in response to Jerusalem being captured and destroyed by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. It is so critical to really understanding lamentations, to have an understanding of all of the history of Israel up to that point. It's so important. That's why the best thing to do to to understand it would be to maybe after today go home and read Genesis 1 through 2 Chronicles and, and a lot of the Psalms and uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, a bunch of the minor prophets, and that will really help to inform you as to, as to what, why, this, why this is such a big deal in Lamentations, why this is such a dark time. But, but since I'm not going to do that, I just want to kind of recap the, the history of Israel just real fast for you. And this also might seem boring. I'm sorry. Um, but but tr- please try and pay attention because it's so important. So, so Israel begins when God swears to Abraham that a great nation would come from him, right? That a great nation would come from him. The Abrahamic covenant, he, he was promised that he would receive this land. And through his offspring, he'd have, he'd have offspring that was as incalculable as the stars in the heaven. And that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's the, that's the central covenant that, that the nation of Israel looks to and gets its hope from. And after hundreds of years, after God has begun to fulfill that promise to them, and, and there are thousands and thousands of Israelites in Egypt, which was also, by the way, part of the promise. Uh, originally, God promised Abraham that his people would be in captivity uh, in, a, in a foreign land. But after this, when God leads the people out of Egypt, he gives them his holy law and he sets up a tabernacle with them, which is this special place where, where uh, it's just this unique honor because it's a special place where the presence of God can dwell with his people in a special way that it, that it isn't in other places. The holy God of the universe dwelling 
with his people. This is an honor for them. And then through God's providence alone, jumping forward a little further, through God's providence alone, the, the promised land that, that Abraham was, was, was told about in the covenant, the promised land is given to the Israelites through miraculous victory after miraculous victory over the Canaanites during the time of Joshua. And after, after a little while longer, after the time of the judges and King Saul, God puts his man, the man after his own his own heart, King David, on the throne. And David's son, Solomon, and, and God kind of officially like, puts his seal on the, on the city of Jerusalem by giving, under the, under the kingship of Solomon, the temple, by putting the temple in Jerusalem. And now this is that special place, this one location on earth where God dwells with his people in a special way. And for a brief period of time, a very brief period of time under Solomon, Everything seems to be going exactly how God has promised. There's peace. The nations of the earth are in awe of the nation of Israel. They're coming in and they're seeing how God has blessed them. And this is kind of the purpose for Israel. This is what God intended for them was to to be this blessing uh, to, to the rest of the nations. But quickly, under Solomon, he leads Israel astray by building uh, idols to foreign gods for his many wives. And Solomon leads the nation astray. And, astray, and under, after he is king, the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, where the city of Jerusalem still is. The northern kingdom has a succession of really wicked kings, and God sends prophets to tell them to, to repent, but they don't. And eventually they're taken into captivity by the nation of Assyria in 722 BC. And at that point, you it would be easy for Israel to start losing hope and start doubting the covenants. But meanwhile, the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, has a succession of it's kind of a mixture between good and bad kings. Many kings are submissive to God, and and they listen to his prophets, and, and then there's a bunch that aren't. But there's still hope, because Jerusalem's still there, the temple's still there. There's still hope in the great covenants that God has made with his people. In the line of David, the great covenant that he made with David, it still holds true, because the line of David is still on the throne in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And this hope grows even stronger because when that same nation of Assyria comes to capture Judah and Jerusalem 20 years later, God delivers them in this just miraculous and amazing way. It's so, it's so important and central to the history of Judah that it's actually recorded three times in Scripture. But there's still this hope after seeing God provide for them in this miraculous and amazing way when he delivers them from the nation of Assyria without the people even having the people of Judah, the armies of Judah, never have to fight, never have to do anything. God, God wipes out Assyria and sends them home crying without Judah doing a thing. And so this hope grows even stronger that, hey, maybe God's covenants, they still remain. We're still his people. Things are still going good for us. And the hope is still there. And we get another section under Josiah where, where it looks like, hey, maybe it's turning back. Maybe things are going back, and, and we are God's people. We can start embracing these things. Passover is reestablished. But then a couple of wicked kings after Josiah. In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar begins conquering cities and deporting captives to Babylon. He plunders Jerusalem. He takes the royal family captive, and he takes the riches from the temple, and he just leaves another king kind of in his place. 
And Jeremiah is a prophet during this time, and he's a prophet to the next king, Zedekiah, that he leaves in, in place. And, and at this point, there's barely any hope. Right? The hope is floundering in, in what God has promised them. And then 10 years later, after Zedekiah refuses to listen to Jeremiah, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes back. He lays siege to Jerusalem, destroys it completely, and destroys the temple as well. Up until this point, this is the lowest point in their history. Not only is it destroyed, but it is destroyed in one of the worst ways imaginable, through, through siege. I don't know if you, you know what a siege is, but basically, so, so Jerusalem has these walls around it, and, and when this army invades or is coming at them, they close all the gates down and everyone retreats into the city and they kind of hunker down there and the army of Babylon sets up all around it so that they're surrounded and the people can't get out. If, people, if someone does make a run for it, they, can, they get killed. Um, and they, just, they essentially just sit there and wait it out. And, and what ends up breaking the city and destroying the city is that the famine gets so bad. And you can actually see if you um, flip over just to, to chapter 4, a couple of verses that kind of indicate that. Chapter 4, verse 4, The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. This is the, the imagery of the famine that's going on. That what The people of God, this is happening to them in the city of God. There, there's this famine taking place, and it actually gets so bad. If you look over at verse 10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The famine gets so bad that mothers boil their own children and eat them in order to survive. The city resorts to cannibalism. It's not just bad. It's, it's worse than, than probably we can imagine. This is where Jeremiah is writing from. This is, how, this is the, the questions. This is how really the great city of David is going to end. Is this where the faithfulness of God would end? And if you go through, and I won't do it, but if you read chapter 1 and 2, they describe in great detail the, the pain and the shame and the humiliation that's come upon Israel because of their sins. And they don't shy away from saying that God has done this to them because they refuse to repent. They, they acknowledge that. And as you read chapters 1 and 2, you just get this sense of utter despair, of utter hopelessness. You get a picture of a trial, the likes of which of, we, we can't understand. I don't feel like any, as a, any of us have seen, because it's worse for them than the sense that God is just, just doesn't care. So maybe you've gone through a trial and you feel like, does God even care about me? anymore? Is it, maybe you've been to that place before, but it's worse than that. What they're saying is, it seems like he does care to the point that, that he is the one who is against us. Not only does he care, but he's against us. It's worse than if he just didn't notice us. He's against us. So, so this is the scene. This is the setting when Jeremiah writes these words. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh 
and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction my eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughters of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. 
You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips, the lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. So as you read through this, and if you read through the whole book, you see this this pain that is almost palpable, that you can almost touch. If you're you're just reading some of these verses uh, by themselves, you would wonder, you'd honestly wonder, and maybe you were, how did some of these make it into the Bible? You might go to someone's house and you see like verses from like 1 Corinthians 13, like love never fails, and, and or Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you to prosper you. Or, or even from this book, you see the one from Lamentations 3.21, the, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. But you would be quite taken off guard to see on a plaque, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Or to, to see it embroidered on a pillow, against me he turns his hand again and again, all day long, or he has made a scum and garbage. You don't see those things. They don't. No one quotes these verses because, and there's an obvious reason why. So we see this. We have this feeling, and, and it's almost painful to read. And, to, and and if you're reading it out loud to a non-Christian, it's almost embarrassing. Like this is this is someone writing something to God. But but we find in here. We find in here ways that God would have us respond to trials. I have 11 of them. And I think when we look at these, like we, see, we see the meaning and the point and the reason we need this book. Because even in the darkest of trials, as I hope that this is painted, what a dark trial can look like. How dark it can be, how bad it can get. And if these things work in this trial, they will work in ours. So number one. Number one, this is kind of just from the context, the overall context of chapter 3. Understand that bad things happen to God's people and be honest about the situation. Don't just be one of those people that pretends that they don't happen, bad things don't happen. Or don't buy into those, the false the prosperity gospel out there that says that if you're just faithful enough, you can keep from allowing bad things from, ha- from happening to you. If you're just faithful enough to God, bad things won't happen to you. The reason bad things happen is because you're not faithful. That, there's, there's theology out there that's like that. But if that was true, if anyone at this time did not deserve to have bad things happen to him, it's Jeremiah, the one writing here. He, he's the one who remained faithful. He spoke up to kings as a prophet the, the words of God and told them the things that they needed, even though it was hard for him and even though he was put under trials and thrown into pits and things were, went bad for him because he spoke up for God. If it were true that faithfulness to God means happy life for the rest of your earthly existence, Jeremiah would have been the one guy in Israel who had it going well right now. But, but listen to how honest he is about, about how, how hard it is. I mean, look at some of these words. Jeremiah says, the rod of his wrath is on me. He brings up the language of, of the siege, the siege from Babylon, and he applies it to God, saying, it's like God has surrounded me, and he won't let me go. And, and, and not in a good way, but in the, he's, he's doing the same thing. You see that in verse 7. In verse 8, he talks about how he's praying, and God is shutting out his prayers. So maybe you've had that feeling, like praying to God, 
And, and I don't feel like he hears me. I don't feel like he's listening. Jeremiah says, he's not listening to my prayer. He says, he, he equates himself to the target of God's arrows. He talks about how arrows are driven deep into his, into his kidneys, which that needs some explaining because kidneys, uh, the word there, um, it's kind of the way we talk about the heart, like not, not as an organ, but as the seed of our emotions. They had that as the kidneys. So, so when, when, you're, when you're reading this, that he, that he drove into my kidneys, the arrow of his quiver, that would be painful and bad. But, but the intent is driving it into your heart. He's driving his arrows into my heart. He fills me with bitterness. It's like he, he's, he's still feeding me. He's still providing me. But it's with rotting, revolting food that's disgusting to me. Jeremiah says, I don't even remember what happiness is is. He says, I've lost my hope in the Lord. Jeremiah is honestly describing his relationship with God. The way things look to him right now is that his only relationship to God is one where God desires to inflict pain on him. He does not glibly gloss over problems. He doesn't he doesn't put on this false front like nothing bad is happening to me, like, oh, the joy of my Lord is my strength. I'm good. Nothing's Nothing bad is going on. It's all right, as, as some of us have a temptation to do. Um, but as a caution, not, not only does he not glib about his problems, but I want to point out that not being glib doesn't mean that you get to have a flippant attitude towards God either. When I was in a Bible study with a bunch of guys in college, where we were actually talking about prayer and, uh, and, and, and how prayer works and how we pray, and why we pray. One of the guys said that he sometimes in prayer yells and screams and curses at God because he just wants to be honest with him and that's how he's feeling. And and everyone else in the group responded like, hey, this guy's just made a just made a brilliant theological breakthrough about prayer, right? We um God knows that there's a bunch of curse words in my heart. So I might as well speak them to him. This is what he was saying. And this, this kind of thinking may not be this bad with other people, but the kind of thinking is still present when people have this understanding that God is just my like, all-powerful buddy. He's, he's just my friend. And, um, he, he, that's, there is truth. He has turned us from enemies into friends. That is Scripture, but he is much more than just that. He is still sovereign God, king of the universe. Jeremiah never takes on an attitude of superiority with God, or, or even like they're on the same level, or that God might be uh, wrong about this. He describes his feelings, and he maybe admits to not being able to understand, but he doesn't put God on his same level where he can talk, to, talk down to him almost. In fact, that's one of the points I want you to see from the structure of the book. It's so well organized that it teaches us that when we address God with our complaints, we don't just get to go off the cuff and just start yelling at him and losing our minds at him in that type of way, losing our temper. The text is so organized, it shows that great thought is put into these laments before they're brought out. And it points out, and in a points where he addresses God, he does it with, with heart, with thought, and with reverence all the time. 
So, uh, point number two, and this is also from the, just the cursory reading. Don't make, in your trials, don't make Satan or someone else sovereign. Jeremiah only, only in these lamentations gives credit for the source of his pain and the nation's pain to God. He only attributes, attributes it to God. And I've, I've actually heard the phrase, people say things like, Satan's got me under his foot right now, or Satan's got me going through this trial right now. No, Satan doesn't put you through trials. Right? So, so many people are so reluctant uh, to attribute anything bad that may happen to God and give all the credit for bad, to, to the bad things that happen to them to Satan that there's this sense in which Satan plays way too powerful a role in their life. He does, yes, attack us, but he doesn't put us through trials. God puts us through trials. Everything that Satan does is under the purview of God's authority, and he allows Satan to do the things he does in order for our good and our benefit. If, if you have this understanding that, that uh, and, and every time you come into a trial, it's just, dear God, please defeat Satan. Please defeat Satan. Stop him from doing this. Stop him from doing this. When you come out of the trial, you're not going to have grown at all. All you're going to do is be happy that Satan's not attacking you anymore. And, you come, and if you come under, uh, under the trial with the understanding that God is ultimately in control, not Satan, then you're at a place where you can learn what he would have you learn through the trial. And, and uh, even more so than Satan, though, we like to blame other people for our problems and for the, the trials that we're going through. Um, and when we assign all the blame uh, for our problems and our trials to the temporal causes, then it becomes very easy to excuse having a, a sinful, whiny, complaining attitude about life. Because as Christians, we kind of have this inner understanding don't we? That we can't say negative things about God. Okay, I know I can't say negative things about God, but when we just choose to kind of push to the side the fact that he is in control of everything, it's easy for us to start whining and complaining about the perceived individuals responsible for our torment. Even from the smallest problems, like bad service at a restaurant, to, to the bigger ones, like politicians that I didn't vote for, if we attribute all of our problems to them, and as long as we can keep God out of that, um, then it's quite easy to live our lives just sounding like everyone else who doesn't know God, complaining and whining about all the problems, all the trials in life that other people are doing to me. Number three, this is the big one. Number three, call, not the other ones aren't big. Still pay attention after this. Call truth to mind. Call truth to mind. This is huge. For this point, I, almost, I won't, but I almost want to read chapters 1 all the way back to here again, just, just so you can understand how huge this is. But, I mean, remember some of these things that, that he's been saying. I am the man who has seen affliction. He's driven and brought me into darkness without light. He's besieged me. He's enveloped me. Uh, he's a bear lying in wait for me. He blocks out my prayers. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made my teeth grind on gravel. My hope from the Lord is, is gone, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Remember, every, remember everything up to that point, and then 
this I call to mind. What he is saying here is in spite of everything that has happened, the horrors of the siege, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the loss of the promised land, the hopelessness that comes from not being able to see how God's covenants can possibly be fulfilled now. Jeremiah says, in spite of all of these things, and in spite of the soul-crushing pain I feel, in spite of the fact that I feel like God has turned away from me and is even attacking me, I know for certain that this is true, even though I don't feel it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Our faith, Our faith is not based on feelings. It's not ever based on how we feel. It's based on the truth. And there will be times in this life that are the darkest of dark, where we feel somewhat like how Jeremiah feels now. And, And in those times, the only thing, the only thing that will get us through is knowing, knowing that it doesn't matter how I feel Because this book is true. And what it says about God is true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And even when it looks beyond a shadow of a doubt like it has, it never does. No matter how bad things might seem right now, it's true that his mercies are new every morning. And even when it looks like he has turned his back on you completely, His faithfulness is still great. These things are true no matter how you feel. In the midst of trials, force yourself to think about these things no matter how unnatural they might seem at the time. So we have that point, and I think from that point of calling it to mind, we get the rest of these points. We get the the, the rest of the points are all have to do with when you call this to mind, this is how you act. So four is call to mind or remember that God is all you need. Verse 24 says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. The Lord is my portion. This language that the little quotes there, that language is from Joshua 19, where upon conquering the land, upon conquering the, the, the promised land completely, um, Joshua kind of divides up the land by how God tells him to, divides up the land and gives it to each tribe individually. Uh, so that, that, that was their portion. Like, here's the portion for Judah. Here's the portion for Benjamin. That type of thing. All the tribes of Israel got a portion of the land except one, which was the tribe of Levi. And they were told, you, your portion is not in the land, but your portion is the Lord. The tribe of Levi is the ones who become the priests. Your portion is the Lord. And so that kind of language is going to be encouraging to Jeremiah here. All the other things in this life, the land, promised land, the the, the city, (laughs) the the temple even, all of the things here and all of the things that you have (laughs) in your life that can easily be taken away, they might be nice and they might be blessings, but your portion is the Lord. He is all that you need. Number five, call to mind, remember the truth that it is good for you to go through trials. It's good for you to go through trials. Verses 25 through 27, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait 
quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. The Lord promises good to those who wait patiently on him through trials for his salvation, for him to come through. A yoke is, is, is a burden. You guys have all been in church long enough, right? You know what a yoke is. It's a metaphor that goes on the oxen. It forces them to go in kind of the same direction, right? You've heard that before. A yoke it's a burden on you that forces you to go in the right direction, to submit to him. It is good for you to bear this in your youth. And that doesn't mean just young people, it's good for trials. And when, when you're older and go for trials, there's no point. Uh, that, that's not what it means. The, the principle is that, that, that it, you learn it when at a point when it will help you to grow and develop in the future. Right? So, so you're going through a trial now that's going to make you stronger for the future. That, that's what it is there for. Uh, number six, um, remember and call to mind your, your state, the way you are, the fact that you are to humble yourself and endure the trial. Humble yourself and endure the trial. Verse 28 through 30, let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. That means you don't fight. You don't argue with God over what he's putting you through. The principle is to humbly submit to it. You're not, you, and, and you don't go about acting like it says in silence, meaning you don't go around acting like, woe is me, I'm going through this trial and trying to draw the attention of people so that you can kind of like hope that, that maybe someone else will hear you and they'll be the means for getting you out of the trial because they'll feel sorry for you. You sit in silence and you take what God puts on you. And it says put his mouth in the dust. That's this, just a complete, an attitude of complete humility, an attitude of complete submission to God. And when he says, giving your cheek to the one who strikes, implies the humility to say, because remember who he says is striking his cheek earlier, again and again, all day long. God, I trust you so much that I'm asking you to put me through whatever you need to, to make me what you want me to be. Do you know, have you ever tried to pray that? That is, that is such a hard prayer to say, God, put me through whatever you need to, to make me what you want me to be. But it's the attitude that, that, that this passage calls us to have before God when we are going through trials. Not just to pray for deliverance, but to pray for this. Remember, call to mind the fact that this trial is temporary. Verse 31, the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Here we see again the link of steadfast love and compassion. And it's calling us to, to stand up under the trial or to, to take the trial and, and, and remember the fact that this trial even if you deal with it for the rest of your earthly life, will not last forever, right? And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. 
The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. That's, that, that's what it's talking about. There is coming a day where Christ will come or where you will die and you will be in his presence and all of the things that seem so bad and so painful and so hurtful here now will make sense and, will, and, you, will have, and you will see how they have made paradise for you even better because he does all things for the good of those who love him. No matter what it is, what it is you might be going through right now, rest assured in the fact that it is only temporary. Number eight, remember that God is just. Verses 34 through 36 says, To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. So here, Jeremiah is calling to mind the justice of God. So, so that was one of the toughest things for the Israelites to deal with, the fact that these evil Babylonians, who are, who are godless idol worshipers, are the ones that God is using to destroy Israel, the people of God. Destroy Judah, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. God's people, God's place, his temple. These, these are sinful guys. They're not angels. They're not... They're not they're not better than us. They're, they're worse in a lot of ways. But, but remember, that's what he's calling it. Remember that God is just. Though while we are on earth, injustice seems to run rampant. And we see, even just this last week, places where uh, things happen and they don't make sense. Tragedies happen all the time. We can, but we can know that there is coming a day because God is just, where he will make everything right. Every unjust action will be accounted for. It will all be paid for because God is just. We know this. And furthermore, because we know that God is just, we know, this is the better truth, that if we're in Christ, then whatever horrible thing might be happening to us at any point in time, we can count it joy because we know for a fact that it's just a trial and never the wrath of God because all of the wrath of God that was owed to us because of our sins has been paid for in full in Christ on the cross. As believers, you will never face the wrath of God. For God to require any punishment from us in payment for our sins after Jesus has paid it all already would be unjust of him. So he calls to mind and remembers that God is just. And that's a better truth for us than it was even for Jeremiah. Number nine, call to mind, remember that God is sovereign. And I know I kind of already talked about this before, but that was like in a negative sense, don't attribute sovereignty to these other people. But, but in a positive way, remember that God is sovereign. Throughout the book, of lamentations, God alone is given credit as the source of destruction, the pain that is there in its place. Now, however, it is brought up in a good light. The sovereignty of God is brought up in a good light because now in the context of the fact that God's love, the Lord's love is steadfast and his faithfulness is great and his mercies never cease because of that, that he's faithful and his character is merciful then with that in mind, remember that that God is the one who is in control of all things. That God, the steadfastly loving God, is sovereignly in control. The one who is always faithful is the one who is always in control. This is kind of reminiscent, the, the words in here are reminiscent of Job's words in, in Job 2.10 when the trials first start happening to him and his wife says, remember, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job responds, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? 
He's ready. He understands that God is sovereign. How we view the character of God makes all the difference in the world when we see awful things happening in the world. Right? If you were to run into a guy who had a bunch of small, sharp objects, and he says he is going to stab you with a few of them, you don't readily submit to that kind of pain. That's like, no, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. But the picture changes dramatically if he is a doctor and you put your trust in his superior knowledge that stabbing you with these needles is what's going to protect you from some of the great dangers that might lie ahead of you for you. These are the things that will protect you. The needles are actually good for you. And you trust that the doctor, even though you don't, may not know about medicine or how things work, you know that he knows. And you can trust him to stab you with the small, sharp things. Right? So, so we see greater evidence in the merciful character of God, even a little further down, when he says, why should a living man complain about the punishment of his sins? We trust in his sovereignty. Like I just said, we don't face the punishment for our sins, but it, um, and we don't have to worry about that. But the principle still holds true even for, more for us. Why should a living man ever complain? With the emphasis on living, we know that upon our first rebellious act against God, because of his holiness, we should immediately die and spend eternity in hell. That's how things should work, but they don't. That is the just punishment for one sin against an infinitely holy God. So if you're living, if you're breathing, that is an example of the mercy of God, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. The very breath that we have to utter our complaints show the mercy of God in our lives. It is this God, this merciful, faithful God who is sovereign, and we can trust him to do what is right. Number 10. Look in verse 40 and 41. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. So call to mind, remember the fact that we are to test and examine ourselves. Trials are a place where we are to test and examine our ways. The word, the word way here is the, is the Hebrew word for road. Derek is the word. It means road, and it, it has the understanding of the way you're going in life or the road you're choosing to take in life. Um, It's a call to examine where you're headed and what you're doing. Although our trials are not a punishment for sin, sometimes they are a natural result of sin in our lives. We don't have to face God's wrath for it, but we still have to face consequences for sin. So in those cases, we can look at our trials and examine our lives and find areas of sin that we need to repent of and turn from. And even when the trials have nothing to do with our sin, when we can, even if we could know for a fact that this trial has nothing to do with any sin in my life, when bad things seem to happen for no good reason, it's an opportunity for us to examine our lives and see how much we really trust God in what he's doing and ask for the grace to continue to trust him. All right, so that was number 10. And, and then in verse 42 and on, as you can probably tell, there, there, there begins the descent back down from the mountain where the tone once again becomes one of pain and suffering. But even though it begins to seem depressing well, once again through the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 and all, of, and all of chapter 5, now we see little glimmers of hope and little cracks of light in the darkness. And the 11th principle is is one I want to point out from there in one of these spots. 
So, so let's keep reading ahead all the way to 58, starting in verse 42. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not forgotten. You've wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I'm lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your, your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called to you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. Here's what Jeremiah is doing. Remember what God has already done for you. Call to mind what God has already done for you. Here, Jeremiah likens what is happening to him right now to a real event that took place in his life. If you run and read it sometime, that's not now. It's in Jeremiah 38, 1 through 6, uh, when he gives the king of Judah a prophecy, which the people don't agree with. They take him and they throw him into a pit. They throw him into an old cistern that has no water in it, but had a bunch of mud in it, and, and they threw him in there, and he sank down in the mud to the point where it ended up, I think, taking like 30 men to pull him up out of the mud because he sank that far into it. But here Jeremiah recalls how when things were at their darkest, God responded to him and saved him. And he uses that to, to point kind of to the future and know so he can trust in God's ultimate salvation and God's ultimate justice. As you, as you would see if you read on through, through the, the end of the chapter, you see him, he, he's now got faith in God's justice prevailing. So it is good when you're going through trials to remember the ways that you have seen God act in the past. Uh, it, when it's so hard to see how he's working now, you can remember back in places where you've seen him act in your past and recall those. And remember, yes, God is faithful. He will be faithful again. And even more than that, we have a salvation that Jeremiah could have never imagined. One which we call to mind and remember every time that, that, that we take communion and every time that we gather here in this church. In Jeremiah 31, one of the most famous and rightly so prophecies in the Old Testament, Jeremiah prophesies of a new covenant. A new covenant where God removes the hearts of stone from his people and replaces them with hearts that can feel. Where God promises to be with his people for eternity in a different way, not through the temple, but in his people. And we can call to mind the unbelievable way in which God worked to bring about our salvation and Jeremiah's salvation even. Not salvation from something as comparatively weak as the Babylonian army, but from the wrath of God that was to be on us throughout eternity in hell. We can look back 
And we can see how God was faithfully bringing this salvation about through God incarnate, who would live the perfect life that we can't, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice and take the full punishment for our sins upon himself. This is the salvation that God, even then, though Jeremiah couldn't see it, was working through these trials and through these, uh, through these horrible-looking um, problems and the pain and the suffering. And I know, I know that many of you, because I know a lot of you have been through some very dark times in your life. Some of these trials have lasted for years and they might last forever. And you just get the sense that, that with the way this world is going, that, that more of these times are coming and not less. And it might feel as though God is just ignoring your prayers sometimes and you don't understand why these things would happen. And you may never fully understand it in this life. And you will go through times where you don't feel the presence of God and where you doubt that he is actually for you. But call this to mind. Force yourself to remember, to meditate on this fact. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And he has proven that truth once and for all through Jesus Christ. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and lamentations. I thank you for the parts in your Bible that, that by our that because of our own um, flesh that, that we really have, don't, don't want to read about. And I thank you for bringing us to places where, we're, where we do, where we have to, where we get to. God, thank you that every word in your word is true and right and can teach and train us. God, I pray for the people of Grace Church God, I don't know all of the stuff, all the trials that they're going through right now that you are putting on them right now. But I pray that some of the things that we've talked about today would resonate with them. God, that they would go from this place with an understanding that while they might not be happy about the trials, they can have joy that you're at work through them. That your character always be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen.